Hello, and welcome to episode four of Aspiring Black Social Worker. I am your host, Shaw. I am a second year master's of social work student, and this podcast is my landing ground, a space where I can process some of the things I'm learning in grad school. It's also a place where I can discuss the various topics that I care about. So first of all, I want to thank you all for listening. This is episode four and guys I don't know who you are where you come from but thank you for listening because honestly I started this podcast without any audience without any following and I got people listening to me so I feel pretty good about that and I want to just take time to say thank you thank you thank you from the bottom of my heart because while I knew who I wanted to talk to like I knew who I wanted my audience to be I did not have any audience, so I appreciate everyone who takes the time to listen to my podcast, and I would like to ask you to take a moment to subscribe, leave a review if you're on Apple Podcasts, follow me on Instagram at Aspiring Black Social Worker. Um, so last time, I said that I wanted to do icebreakers at the beginning of the show just so you all can get to know me just a little bit better and I I'm gonna do an icebreaker but I wanted to first just talk about the fact that my podcast is on Spotify and I know with the whole Joe Rogan controversy that a lot of people are leaving Spotify. Now, y'all know, I don't got that many followers. I'm not going to act like, yes, people care whether or not I'm on Spotify. But I felt like it was just a moment to say how I feel about a couple of things. Um, I am not a fan of council culture. So while I do not support, condone, whatever, no one should be saying the N-word, especially someone who is not black. So I do not condone that at all. And I don't want this to be taken as that. But I also don't believe in counseling people just randomly. (laughs) I don't really believe you can counsel people anyway, but it's just... I I was trying to do a little bit of digging into this just so I could have some better thoughts. And honestly, I don't even know who Joe Rogan is. So I can't really give a good, (laughs) like a good excuse or a good reasoning behind, you know, why I feel like I can't counsel him. I can't counsel him because I don't know him. That's simple as that. But also, I did listen to his apology And I'm not one to say whether or not he was sincere or heartfelt because everybody's not good with words. So I'm sure there's some people out there who's given sincere apologies and people have not gotten the genuineness or the authenticity of it. And there's people out here who can sound great and not mean a word. So I'm not going to go into whether or not I think he means what he says. But one thing... I do believe, and I think as a social worker 
and people in the helping profession, we have to believe that people can change. So one of the things he said in his apology is that like he admitted that he's used the word frequently and he he said he hasn't said it in years, right? I don't know. I saw that Spotify took down some of his um, podcasts and apparently they all predate the COVID pandemic. So at least about two years in my mind, he has not said the word. So I'm like, maybe he really has changed. And I think you got to have that hope, right? You got to have hope that people can change. As social workers, you would not be doing this work if you thought that everybody was just stagnant, couldn't grow, couldn't change their mind, couldn't, you know, find the motivation to do anything differently. So I think that is um, just something we need to all consider when thinking about this whole council culture and how we operate within it. So that's my piece on that. And let's get into the icebreaker. I chose a couple of icebreakers and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them, but I thought they were pretty good questions. So the first question is, am I a listener or a talker? And you may think that because I have a podcast that I am a talker, but I'm really a listener. I really enjoy learning about people and it's kind of like I'm doing research on people to kind of figure them out when I'm just listening. So I would definitely say I'm more of a listener. Also, I'm also an introvert. And I can be pretty shy. So if I'm in a room with people that I am unfamiliar with, even if I'm in a room with people I'm familiar with and only like one person I don't know, I'm probably going to just sit back and listen <laughs> So that may be why I have a podcast is because I do have things I want to say and things that I'm thinking about. And I don't know if just I will bring them up in conversation. Sometimes I will, but some things I want to talk about are a little too deep or a little too intense for the people I'm talking to. Or for the situation that we're in, right? Like if we're in a like a family fun kind of situation, you don't want to talk about <laughs> critical race theory, right? So I would say I'm more of a listener, but I do like to talk and I will definitely talk my husband's head off. But that's about it because I also don't even like answer my phone when people call me. So you know what? I'm just go with listener. That's my final answer. And then the next question was, if I was going to write a book, what would it be about? And I thought about this one because I've always wanted to write a book. And I was thinking like, what are you passionate about enough to like put it into a book? Because, you know, if I'm going to write a book, it's going to be a good length. Just because I'm a reader. Like, I don't want to... I hate getting a book that's good and it ends too quickly, right? So, like, what what can I write about that would have some substance, some meat to it? 
And I was thinking, uh, I would probably write about boundaries. I don't know if it would be fiction or nonfiction, but I could definitely see myself writing a book about boundaries. Maybe like a self-help book. Because I am very, like, passionate about people having boundaries, respecting boundaries, identifying your boundaries, and... Um, I really think that a lot of problems that people have in life would be non-existent if they had just recognized that they were uncomfortable with a situation, didn't like how something made them feel, um, and spoke up and kind of stuck to their guns, right? Like I always tell my clients, when you set a boundary with someone, if you say, hey, I don't like this. I didn't like how it made me feel. I need you to not do it again. And if that person does it again, that means they don't respect your boundaries and they don't respect you. And you should probably leave them alone, right? So I tell that to my clients and I truly believe that. I don't think we should waste a lot of time on people who can't respect our boundaries. And I realize that there are people who did not grow up in a way or have a life that led them down a road of like being respectful of people's boundaries. And I do think there's room for grace. Um, But I also think you have to know yourself. And if you are really that upset by something, that uncomfortable by something, that hurt by something because I'm talking a lot to domestic violence victims, right? So if you're being physically abused and you tell the person not to do it and they do it again, you have to really be prepared to like stand firm and have consequences to that. And that's easier said than done. So that is a lot of nuance to that. So don't take that as me saying like DV victims should just leave the first time. No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that it's important to learn what you will and would not put up with. And then live by that mess, right? Especially when it is something that can cost you a lot of distress. So... Yeah, I would write a book about boundaries. This week in grad school, we were discussing if we believe that people can change. And this conversation led to me reflecting on my own values and how those can lead to bias. And one of the values that I have one of the values that I value, I guess, is hard work. I value people who I believe work hard. And it's not that I value the tangible benefits of hard work, although I do hope they manifest for whoever is working hard. I value people who are really just trying their best and you can see that effort. Because that, that means something to me. I have been working since I was old enough to work. And even on days where I don't feel like going to work or times where I was living paycheck to paycheck, 
I felt like I had some kind of purpose because of work. I also became a mother right after graduating from undergrad. So I was pretty young. I was 21. Yeah, I was 21 years old. Um, So I graduated in December. I had a child in February. So I had to support my daughter. (laughs) So I, you know, I really got right to work. I don't even know if I waited like that whole six week thing they tell you to wait before like getting out the house like I was like I need to go out and get a job um so that's always been my mentality you know I want to make sure that no matter what I can take care of my children and myself and you know I've been lucky enough to have a very supportive husband a very involved family um so I don't have a hard life and I've can't say I've ever had a hard life, but I have had a life where I feel like I need to be able to be independent. And so I just always um, think of that when I'm working with my clients. So I give that background to explain how my values can lead to bias. One of the challenges I face is that when I'm working with someone who has made some goals with me, we set the goals, we write them down, we make them plain, right? And then they're not doing the work to actually reach those goals. I don't know what it's like to not do everything in my power to ensure that me and my family have a place to live, food to eat, clothes on our backs, So it baffles me (laughs) when I don't see that in my clients. And I try to talk to them to get an understanding of their struggles, any barriers that are like physical barriers, mental barriers, emotional barriers that could be stopping them from making progress on their goals. But I have had clients who give me no reasons. And that's, you know, that throws me off. Oh, when you have no excuse. But then I also have clients who give me excuses that I don't think are valid. And trust me, I know that I don't get to determine what's valid, but it's difficult for me because of my own values surrounding work. So when this happens with a client, I try to find ways that I can help, right? Like I try to help with the job search or help them secure ABC vouchers for daycare for their children. Um, I refer them to job training programs or even counseling if they are suffering from some kind of mental or emotional barrier that's stopping them or just other community resources in general, right? Now, if they take me up on any of these options, I am still hopeful. I believe that we can make this work. I am, you know, rooting But if they refuse all options, this is where my bias tends to kick in and I start to gradually lose interest in working with them. But luckily, luckily, I have a very strong sense of right and wrong, fairness and equality. So I don't mistreat my clients or treat them differently from my other clients. But I do have to be extra cautious about how I make decisions regarding the clients who I don't see putting in the work, right? And I have no shame. I will go to my supervisor because I need to double check my biases to ensure that I'm not making a decision 
based on how I feel about my clients and their lack of goal progression. Because it's important for me to really see a client through. For instance, when you get into my program, while the program is supposedly three to four months in length, I really have like this vested interest in your success as well. And I have to watch that too, because I need to make sure that I'm not viewing my client's success as my success. Um, Because that can get tricky too, right? Like it can make me feel like if they're not doing what they're supposed to do, then I'm failing. So I have to do that. But more so than anything, I like to check in with my supervisor because I am aware of the power dynamics in my relationship with my clients. And I never want to get to a point where I misuse that power or abuse that power just because I feel like you aren't doing what I think you should be doing, right? So, and it's all about power in these relationships. I know as social workers, we really try our best to break down those walls, to break down those barriers and work alongside our clients and to partner with our clients. But from our clients' perspectives, that may be something completely new to them. And it just, as much as we try, they may still say, but she still has a little more control than I do, right? Like they may look at me and be like, she holds the key to resources that I need. And it's true. I have that ability to grant access to or deny access to certain resources. And that is a huge, huge power and responsibility to have over somebody, especially somebody who's not your child or not in your own home because essentially you're a stranger. So I really try to keep that at the forefront of my mind. And honestly, I truly trust myself. I fully trust myself to handle these situations, but only because I am willing to get that supervision, right? Um, And that's my message to social workers and all helping professionals. We need to realize our power and make sure that we are not misusing it and that clients are aware of how we make decisions sometimes. Because if they don't have that kind of clear, that clear understanding from the outset it does get into where you're kind of using your own judgment, which I get we have to do, but if you're using our own judgment and we already have a negative view of a client or we have a positive view of a client, that can sway us a little bit in how we determine what we can and cannot do for certain clients. And I actually was talking to my field um, supervisor about this this past week because like I said, I have no shame. I'm, I'm going to talk to you about it. So I came to the realization that some of this could be a problem of my own doing, right? Like if a client isn't working towards her goals and really 
putting in an effort that I can see or that I can kind of understand how it's going, I may not be creating a very trusting environment or relationship with that client. So when I'm trying to have these very necessary conversations, because these are conversations we have to have, like you cannot be, I cannot be your case manager forever. I cannot provide these resources to you indefinitely. So I have to have these conversations, but maybe the clients aren't being open and honest with me because I have not created an environment that allows them to feel comfortable being open and honest. So I need to look at myself. And that's not to say that the client has no responsibility, especially since they're the ones seeking help. But it's my role to make sure they don't feel judged. It's already hard enough to ask for help. And I know I have a hard time with that myself. So I just imagine how hard it is to be an adult coming to another adult and admitting that life is so hard that they're having trouble doing something as simple as looking for a job, right? Like, it could be hard to put yourself out there to get rejected for jobs or to be looked down on because you need help taking care of your children or you need, you know, financial assistance from, like, the state. That can be a difficult thing to do. And life is heavy sometimes, It's a heavy load for all of us at times. And people really are dealing with issues that so many of us couldn't even fathom. So I know I have to give myself a heart check when it comes to my own values and how I allow my own values to impact my clients, whether that's negatively or positively. How I feel about my clients can lead to how I interact with my clients. And I have to be very clear about how that will pan out. I don't want to ever be the person who becomes so jaded that I don't believe my clients have good intentions. I don't, that I believe they're lazy, that I believe um, that I have the right to mistreat them or make decisions that would negatively impact them without doing everything I can to empower them while also doing everything I can on my end to be able to assist them. I have had encounters with people who work with the homeless population or work in nonprofit work or work with just survivors of domestic violence or just, you know, just some other marginalized community or population. And I'm like, y'all do not care about these people. Y'all think they're lazy. Y'all think they're just coming to earth. Y'all don't think they have any value. And I promised myself that if I ever got to that point, I would just quit. (laughs) Like just seriously, I would quit because I don't ever want to be that person looking down on another human being. I can't be that person. And I refuse to let myself get to that position. Um, so it's not always easy. I've definitely been in a position where I want to give up on a client. Before I give up on a client, my heart always steps in and prompts me to try to look at the situation from their perspective, to try to another angle, to try another tactic with them, because is that important to me 
that people feel loved and, you know, valued and that they have worth in this world, especially when you have, you know, the clients I work with who are survivors of domestic violence and they have been put down and, you know, shut down and abused and told that they are worthless. It's so important that I have to make sure that I don't perpetuate that kind of trauma that they've come from in my work with them. So here's what I care about this week. And this is something that I've been thinking about for a few weeks, actually, and I'm I'm still thinking about it. But I wanted to go ahead and share it because it is important enough for me to share, I think. And what I have been thinking about is language and the words we use to describe ourselves and our community. So while the conservatives are over there crying about feeling uncomfortable and guilt-ridden about their great-grandparents' support of the burning down of Black people's homes and Black communities and the general oppression (laughs) of Black people, I'm sitting here sick and tired of calling ourselves minorities marginalized, disadvantaged, etc. I was listening to this podcast recently and was reminded that words are spells. Words are spells. Now don't get all scary because I use the word spells and immediately think of witchcraft. Although the podcast I was listen- listening to might put you in that mindset, especially if you're Um, super religious. Um, But even the Bible says, for as a man thinks, so he is. So I was thinking about all those words and how it's not just black people who use them. People all over the world are using these words to describe black people, black community, black society. So let's look at the definition of some of these words. Or at least, yeah, it's some of the words. So thinking about the word minority, right? The root word is minor, which means of lesser importance, having low rank, status, or position. Do you think it's a coincidence that black people and other non-white people are called minority? Minorities, that word pretty much keeps us in the position that we're in. Remember, words are spells. So it's people all over the world, including black people, are going around saying the minority population, right? And then the word marginalized. Marginalized means placed in a position of little or no importance, influence, or power. This is another word that we're all called. And I know that um it's just the word itself the definition tells us that black people and people with melanin are less important than white people because when you think of marginalized communities you immediately think of black communities hispanic communities You do not think of white communities, although there are 
some white communities who have lesser class, no one immediately goes to white people. And while we're at it, let's look at the word majority. Right? The root word of majority is major, which means one of superior rank and ability. So right there, when we call white people the majority, we're saying that they are superior to us. They are have higher rank. They have better abilities than us, right? Which means we are inferior, okay? If we assign someone the status of majority and we assign ourselves the status of minority is a clear difference there that we have to really think about. And even in social work, we use words like dominant and target group or dominant and target population. And I remember doing a, not having an assignment about a target population and target groups and that's when I really started thinking about that, like the words and how I don't like them. Because who wants to be a target, right? Like a target is something you shoot at, <laughs> you know, target. Target means an object of abuse, scorn or derision. Dominant means to rule over. So we just giving up, giving up all our power. When we say that the white population is the dominant population, that means we're giving them permission to rule over us. And I'm not some conspiracy theorist. <laughs> like, I just want us to think about the words we use. I really do. And then I look at the word disenfranchised which basically means weak helpless defenseless and this is probably why we have so many non-black people telling the black community what is best for them now trust me i understand why we use these types of words it gives us a name to our it gives us a way to name our experiences right and once we can name our experiences we can work on solutions but I also understand that if the whole world is looking at us as the minorities, as the disenfranchised, as the marginalized, as the target group, that is a whole lot of power that is keeping us down. And I don't want to sound like some crazy person out here, but you got to think about it. Like, that's why people do positive affirmations, right? Because it helps them become, like, if, if you think it, you can be it. So when you say, I am powerful, I am beautiful, I am smart, I am kind, you eventually convince yourself of these things to the point that you become that. That is the beauty of power, the beauty of affirmations, right? That is the power of positive affirmations, so these are negative affirmations and it's not just you looking in the mirror telling yourself these things about yourself. It's the whole world saying these things about you. And so it's like intensified and multiplied to the point that 
we are stuck and I want to find a way to change this language. And it's not just the black community, it's melanated communities in America. I don't want to speak because I I don't have this global knowledge. I'm not going to speak like I know what's going on in other countries. But yes, in America, in the United States of America, melanated populations are all called minorities, marginalized. And we have to stop embracing these words because these words are what's cursing us to continue in the struggle for equality. That's why I really love it when I see people calling each other kings and queens and yes, queen. You know, I love that is, you know, funny as it can be sometimes. It really is very uplifting and empowering, right? Because it's like, okay, remember that you are from royalty. Remember that you are not a peasant. Remember that you are not some lowly person. But at the same time, while we're saying, yes, queen, we go right back to also agreeing that we're minorities (laughs) and that we're a marginalized community. And it's important to have words when you have to fight, right? Because if we don't use words like that, then we are not able to fully describe what's going on so we can get that change. It's like a double edged sword, you know? I don't I don't have the answers and maybe that's why I'm putting it out here on the podcast because I I don't have the answers but I do know that we have to find some new words like you know how it went like the (laughs) what we call ourselves as black people have went through so many iterations right what we called ourselves negro um colored african-american black you know I'm I'm right now I'm good with black. I feel like that is and it's not that I'm wanting to deny my African roots because that's definitely not it. But I, I like just being able to say black. It's easy, you know, it's clear who you're talking about. And it could include people who are not from the United States, right? So I like the word black. But my point is instead of using these types of words, these cursed words (laughs) instead of using these words in the meantime I'm just gonna call us black like (laughs) the black community is going through this you know because it is it is power in naming what it is but it's also disempowering as well when the naming that we use has negative connotations. So I just I just want us to all stop calling ourselves you know minorities cuz there ain't nothing minor about us, you know? Like I that's just what it is. I don't see nothing minor about black people. We are so beautiful, so talented, so smart so freaking funny I love it and I don't want to just call ourselves these words and I want us all to stop and my platform is small (laughs) 
But y'all spread this message because it it has a lot of truth to it. All right. All right. Thank you all so much for listening to episode four of Aspiring Black Social Worker. I promise you it really does mean a lot to me that you take the time to listen. Please, if you have any questions or topics for discussion, just shoot me an email at aspiringblacksocialworker at gmail.com. Also, share my podcast with all your social work friends, your helping professional friends. Um, If you feel like it is slightly (laughs) entertaining, interesting, whatever you find this podcast to be, definitely share. And I will um, see you all next week. Bye.